one of the reasons that we really were gravitating towards writing about the different historical and important figures in this book as well was that we saw ourselves in them. So when President Obama became president, it was such a big deal for the community of color. And now we have Kamala as um, vice president and that was huge. And so even though I'm not of South Asian descent, I identify with her. And so I figured that even at my age, if it's pulling me and it's making me feel good, I'm sure that as a child, it would have been even more. Hey everyone, I'm Maria Sansone and welcome to another edition of Mom to Mom, the podcast. I'm so glad you're here with us today. We are talking about representation and how much it matters. And we know this. It matters in the media and in our workplaces and especially in our homes and on our bookshelves. And my guests today are helping us to really diversify our libraries and tell a beautiful story. So Dr. Sheila Modier and her husband, Jeff Cashew, they put their heads together to write this beautiful book called The Proudest Color. It is a thoughtful children's book that introduces some really big concepts, things like race and racism and racial pride. And it does it in such a accessible and sweet way for children and for grownups too. So as clinicians, they were both able to bring their experiences to really root this book in evidence-based practices and give us parents a strong foundation and tips to facilitate these often difficult conversations at home. And it also gave kids a way to see themselves maybe like a little bit differently um, and their experiences. So this was a great episode. I hope you like it as much as I did. Here is my conversation with Dr. Sheila and Jeff. Dr. Sheila and Jeff, how are you? Good. Thank Great. you. Thanks for having us. I got to tell you, Jeff, it's nice. We don't normally have guys in the mom cave. So this is a special exception. <laughs> I feel very privileged. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, first of all, congratulations on this beautiful book, The Proudest Color. You must be very proud to have that on your bookshelf all done. And it's such a good book. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, we're so excited that it's out right now. So tell us what inspired you to write this book. Yeah, so the book um, was inspired actually um, by uh, the murder of George Floyd back in, I believe it's been last summer already, and the uh, subsequent protests that followed focused on racial justice. And we're both clinicians. And at that time, we had patients and families asking us about how to be able to talk to families about and kids about race and racism and this topic. And so we were looking into our resources and we realized that there aren't a lot of children's books that explicitly talk about an incident of discrimination or racism. And um, there aren't a lot of books that pull from evidence-based practices and research. And so we wanted to be able to incorporate our clinical knowledge and the research together to be able to write it in a developmentally appropriate manner for children to be able to understand. And it's nice because you were able to bring your clinical background and research to this book, but also your personal experiences. So I'd love to hear about both of your personal backgrounds and how that came into play. I'm Iranian American. I uh, was born and raised in Illinois in a small town. And um, so kind of close, probably not, but now I'm in California. And um, when I was growing up, 9-11 happened when I was um, just about entering high school. And that was a really formative experience for the Middle Eastern community in general. And I think mm-hmm. that was around the time that uh, 
anti-Muslim hate was going on. And there was just so the incidences of discrimination had increased tremendously toward this population. And so I was definitely targeted growing up and I was made to feel different. And I was definitely also um, one of the few kids of color in my class. I stood up. If you look at my uh, photo and school photo, you can see me from like a mile away. I stand out in the crowd because I looked uh, different. And so, um, so I think that growing up, I was very aware of these things. And actually when I moved to California, it was one of the first times where I felt like I blended in or there was more people from communities of color here, at least in Southern California, that I could really be able to see myself in. And so really reflecting on that experience and how that impacted me. And also as I entered my doctoral degree, you know, my dissertation was focused on discrimination experiences toward communities of color. So that really, they say research is me search. So it definitely shaped me. So you come in with a lot of research here, both personal and the real stuff. Um, Jeff, what about your experience? Yeah, so I grew up in Southern California, obviously a lot more of a diverse and uh, progressive community in general, you know, but uh, similar to Sheila, when 9-11 occurred, despite, you know, the environment I was in, I experienced a lot of discrimination, both from fellow students and teachers as well, who, whether it was carving things into my desk or chanting or saying things towards me, you know, basically from that day throughout my high school experience, And then being a Palestinian American as well, it's always something I, every time I'm open about it, you know, questioning, you know, do I want to just identify as Arab, Middle Eastern, or do I want to say Palestinian and and own it and embrace it? So how would it have felt for both of you to have a book like this on your shelf growing up? I think it would have definitely been really validating. And I think it would have been really affirming of who I am. I think that I, one of the reasons that we really were gravitating towards writing about the different historical and important figures in this book as well was that we saw ourselves in them. So when um, President Obama became president, it was such a big deal for the community of color. And now we have Kamala as um, vice president, and that was huge. And so even though I'm not of South Asian descent, I identify with her. And so I figured that even at my age, if, if it's pulling yes. me and it's making me feel good, I'm sure that as a child, it would have been even more. Well, representation is so important uh, at any age, right? And then also just to see people who look like you, it's there, it's got to be something inherent that, that feels good and makes you feel included. And so for a kid to have something like this is just such a great, great resource. What are some of the other things that you wish you had had in your toolkit as a kid? Yeah, I think for myself, it would have been knowing you know, that it was actually not just okay to embrace who you are and that you have a place in the world, but how to communicate that, right? And I think for communities of color, it's, you know, hard to speak in big generalities. So, you know, I'm counting in, in that, of course, but there's kind of this push and pull of like needing to assimilate, kind of go along to get along while also still maintaining some semblance of a cultural or racial identity and all of that. So I think as a kid also knowing, you know, that you could how to speak to it, how to kind of create that space for yourself, um, embrace it where it is and, and, and how it is, you know, having more figures and in, in classrooms or uh, images, for example, you know, that, those would have been the things that would have been, I think, helpful as a kid to have seen. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the plot of the book for those people that haven't gotten it yet. So um, it follows a girl named Zahra. She's biracial and um, she sees and feels in color. And what we mean by that is that 
For example, if she feels um, anger, uh, she sees bright red color across her cheeks and sadness is demonstrated by um, feeling deep blue sadness in her eyes. And one of the reasons that we wanted to write about that is because we also want to incorporate emotion identification and build children's emotional literacy. And so she sees the world in um, these vivid colors, but the color that um, she sees on herself always is the color brown and she associates that color with pride and that's the color of her skin tone and her family is very affirming of that and very proud of her and proud of, of that. And so when she goes to school for the first day, she first realizes, you know, she doesn't really look like other people in her classroom. And then there's a more um, explicit experience of discrimination on the playground where a child tells her that, you know, I don't like the color brown. And so uh, Zahra is really made to question her skin tone and her pride in her skin tone. And when she tells her family about the incident, they remind her of all these important figures in her life, whether it's her school principal or her, or her physician, or even um, more celebrity figures or political figures, historical figures that have gone on and done amazing things and are also from different communities of color. So we really want to make sure that we were trying to incorporate as many different communities of color. And I think that was definitely a big task because there's so many important figures to include, mm -hmm. but we wanted to make sure that any child could really relate to this book. It's a great read for grownups too. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And I think identifying emotion is so important for everybody. And kids have a really hard time of explaining how they feel. So I think that that's another really great theme in this book. So what are the main things that you would hope that parents and kids get from this story? The first thing is we, you know, and we included a page of, you know, tips for and notes to caregivers and parents on how to get ready for conversations like this with their kids and how to actually then have those conversations too. We wanted Which our book. Great. Because when it comes for you, it's never when you expect it. So you have to prepare. The big questions come when you don't have time and you're like slammed. So Right, right, exactly. And that actually hits on, you know, one of our tips in there is, you know, it's not just a one and done conversation with children. You know, it's your child is going to continue to develop and progress over time and form new understandings and have new experiences and have different needs. So don't feel like it has to be one huge conversation. The whole family sits down. I mean, you can do that, but keep keep in mind it's an ongoing one. And your child doesn't have to walk away with your ideal experience of it at the end of it as well. It's being open to it. We also encourage parents to prepare themselves and check in. It's a loaded topic and, and a heavy topic for a lot of parents and adults. And so making sure you have done whatever support or uh, work that you need there, also checking in with whatever internal biases you may have. And then just sticking with the open-ended questions with kids. You know, as parents, you know, when you say, how was your day? You're going to get the fine or the good. And yeah. we want to encourage more dialogue there. So we've been talking a lot about your work and your book and diversifying our bookcases. And I know that one of the things that you focused a lot of your work on is cultural socialization. So can you dive into that a little bit for us? Yeah, definitely. So um, our book was based on the topic of racial socialization and cultural socialization is a component of it. So I'm really glad that you touched on that because it basically is another way of saying how to communicate about race and racism with your child um, and the messages that we transmit as parents and caregivers. So the research has found that there's three different ways that parents often approach this topic with their 
children. And one could be um, that they prepare them for bias, right? So they sit down and they say, this is, this could happen to you. And this is something that could happen in the world. And I want you to know about it. Mm -hmm. Another way is cultural socialization, where they will really try to instill cultural pride and immerse the child into um, their culture or different types of cultures. So that when the child experiences race or racism, the child can actually reflect on the pride that they have for their culture and use that as a buffer for later mental health um, symptoms that emerge oftentimes with experiencing discrimination. And finally, the last one um, is called promotion of mistrust. And that's when parents are saying, well, don't trust this group or don't trust that group because historically this is what they do to you, but they don't really facilitate any sort of coping skills. So it's just um, instilling mistrust in, into the child. And that has actually been found to have negative mental health effects. So when we were looking at those three ways that um, communities of color tend to have this conversation with their child, we wanted to combine preparation for bias with cultural socialization. So Zahra's parents are saying, yeah, sometimes this happens to you at school, or sometimes people might not like your skin color, but here's all the different ways that you can feel proud of your culture. So it was a, almost like a marriage of those two components. I like that. And as a pediatric psychologist, I'm sure that you have worked with kids on this. So what would be some examples of, of putting that into action? Yeah, definitely. I think that with this topic of race and racism, we want to look at the different, like Jeff was talking about, the different developmental stages that a child is at. And so this book is geared for around the ages of five to eight. And so around that stage, we know that they tend to be very concrete thinkers. So they, one way that you can explain race and racism to your child, taking all this into mind, is the concept of fair and unfair. Because every child around that age range understands. It's not fair. It's not fair. That's not fair. Um, so if they see their sibling get two cookies and they get one cookie, they understand that that's not fair. Absolutely. And so you can actually use that example as how different communities um, in, in our nation actually are not treated fairly and have not been treated fairly historically as well. And there are communities that tend to get the two cookies and then there's, ten, there's some that get one cookie. And then this is what, um, you know, you could talk about the civil rights era and how they fought for, um, you know, justice, social justice and being able to have equal rights. So the conversation can take a very concrete, developmentally appropriate manner using metaphors that they understand and applying it to real world situations. And it can be really tough as a parent to have these conversations because you just, like you said, these are formative years for them. And so you don't want to say the wrong thing. So I think a lot of times we just sort of dodge it or try to not dive head on. But like you said earlier, it's kind of one of those things that is an evolution and you kind of build on it, right? A little bit at a time. So every little conversation that you have is like a building block for the next thing. Is that yes, kind yes. of the idea? Yeah, we don't want one and done. We want to make sure that these are conversations that are ongoing and that they are changing as a child's developmental stage changes as well. And you said this was inspired by the murder of George Floyd. I wonder what the conversations were in your house during that time. That was a really difficult period. And as a parent, I was at a loss for explaining a lot of things as many of us were. So just wondering what that time was like for you. 
Yeah, I think more of these conversations were also happening in our offices as well, because our patients were very much confused and conflicted. And I think it was a very charged political time. And I, um, and I think the things that were coming up were, um, if for younger kids, we really wanted to make sure that they understood that this is what's happening in the world right now in a very, again, developmentally appropriate manner. So there's people that um, were mistreated uh, unfairly and they wanna make sure that they get the treatment that they need. And we could talk about police brutality also in a way. Is that what you were thinking? That's tough, yes, because it's, I'm at the age right now, I have a second grader and a preschooler. And I'm at the trust the helpers phase of these are the people if ever you should you know these are the people you trust and police usually being one of them so this is that area where it's like well yes you can trust police but not always and you can trust your teacher but unless they're not a good person and it gets tricky and when are they ready for that yeah i think it's important first to ask a child what's their understanding of it before you just kind of dive right in and and that'll also help you kind of gauge where they are developmentally and how to then frame the rest of the conversation kids still hold on to a lot of magical thinking or can be like you know sheila was saying very concrete so where they can be sort of black and white things have to be one way or the other you know we try as parents as educators as clinicians to help people start to understand that gray area and that nuance between things it's not to say that some issues in some circumstances aren't black or white but it's not that there's a switch we can pull and just change everything all at once and so there's a great example out there um, and we've even included it in some of the material we we have on our website on how to even discuss like the murder of george floyd and describing it in very kind of concrete terms and and not having to get into all the the details of it. Kids don't necessarily need that, but that a bad thing happened. And, you know, and it was, uh, you know, one person who did something that was very mean. And yes, this does happen in other places too, you know, and it's the yes and that kind of helps children understand that not everything is black and white and to start to develop their way of thinking critically about what's going on for them. I love that tip, Jeff, about the throw it right back at them. And when I remember to do this, I do when kids ask you the big questions and you turn it right back on them and you're like, well, what do you think it means? Right. I got the, what is puberty from my eight, <laughs> seven-year-old? And I was like, oh, what man. do you think it yeah. is? <laughs> because I didn't know how far to go with it. I'm pretty much an open book. So I was like, well, how far are we going with this here? So it was good to gauge where she was actually at. It wasn't nearly where my head was going. So that's a great, great tip. I think we can all use. Now, what if in your professional opinion, kids ask a question that you truly just absolutely don't have the answer to? Cause it happens We're we're just people too. Yeah. So that's something that we've talked about too, where you can say, that's a really good question and let's try to find the answer together. And, and I think that that's okay to say, and that's what we want to make sure that we're getting out there. It's okay to say, I don't know. We want you to have these conversations and it's okay if 75% of that conversation is, I don't know, but let's find out together because what a great thing to model. Yeah. We don't have to be know-it-alls and kids should know that. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And it alleviates the pressure on the parent too, right? You want to hit kind of that good enough parent and not feel like you have to manage every single situation, but make sure that they at least know that they're safe and you're there for them. So I understand that you are donating the proceeds of this book to a very worthy cause. Will you tell us about that? 
Yeah, so we decided uh, early on after seeing everything that was going on last year that we wanted to donate our author proceeds to the ACLU and to other local social, uh, other local organizations that work with youth for uh, racial and social justice, just to give back to the community and, and try to get the word and our book out there as much as possible. Yeah, and just do our part right now. We're all trying to contribute to the movement and keep the conversation going. So it's the least that we can do. I love that. I wish there were more people like you out there. <laughs> Tell everyone where they can find this beautiful book that is for a great cause. Great. So the book is sold um, everywhere that books are sold. Um, we have our website, theproudestcolor.com, where parents can find other resources on how to talk to kids about race and racism there, as well as different organizations. If they're interested in donating as well, we have a list of various organizations available. And then I have my Instagram at Dr. Sheila's Bookshelf, where I highlight books that have mental health themes. So it's basically from my therapy office bookshelf to your home library, books that I would recommend parents really um, reading with their child. Well, there's lots of different ways we could go. We have so many topics that we didn't even cover today. So we might have to do this again. Dr. Sheila and Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. That's a wrap for this episode of Mom to Mom, the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. As always, a little reminder that you can watch the TV version of these shows on Mondays at 1130 a.m. on NBC 10 Boston. And in the meantime, you can join our Facebook group. We'd love to see you there. All you do is search Mom to Mom with Maria Sansone. All right, that does it for me. Have a great day, and I'll see you next time here on Mom to Mom.